Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy, and this is part one, our first episode with Betty Lamont. Now, Betty is someone whose work has been very influential for me, starting back when I had my adopted son. When it comes to the topic of neurodevelopment and trauma, Betty is one of my favorite people. She does not beat around the bush. She tells it exactly the way it is and honestly what we need to hear about the topic. We are diving into the question, why does trauma make it difficult for us to say, I don't know? Now, this podcast has four main sections. Section one, the effects of separation from our mom. Section two, the surprising hormone that we need for learning. Section three, why trauma can make it difficult to say, I don't know. And section four, why movement needs to be brought in for attachment trauma. This is going to be a powerful time of diving deep into early childhood. Are you ready? (laughs) early childhood development, learning, and stored trauma, where it all can start. But not only that, what we can do about it and how to prevent it. Let's jump in. I have been working for 35 years with kids who have been traumatized. This has been really critical to my whole uh, current trajectory. I started out working with children with simple learning disabilities and attention problems and finally found myself working with children who've been traumatized because we live in a traumatic culture. And so there was a point where I decided to pivot to say, I want to go from just treating the children once they are hurt to finding out how we can support children before they get hurt in the first place. And in learning how to prevent some of the predispositions for trauma and the trauma itself, we learn a lot more about how we can also help those children once they have been traumatized. Yes. When I first got introduced to your work, it was still very much focused on the symptoms of hyperactivity, difficulty focusing, anxiety. And I love the shift that you have doing because certainly in our society, just in the last few years, Betty, we have seen so many more mental health diagnoses being put on children And the really the root cause is this predisposition that we seem to be born with now for trauma and understanding why that is happening is so crucial. So thank you. Yes. And let's talk about the first year of life and what's going on in the brain that we need to understand for this predisposition and biology of trauma almost. I really want to support you in your journey too, because yes, at least one in six children are diagnosed with a mental health disorder. And I heard on my NPR station, I was as I was waking up a couple months ago, that up to 30% of our children currently could be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. It's huge. It's epidemic. It is not natural. It's typical right now, but it is not natural to exactly. see a quarter mm-hmm. of a classroom being given medication at lunch to have special aids and special programs. Right. This is not the way that we are supposed to grow. So I want, I do want to focus on the first year of life. And I'm going to talk about three different stages. Uh, I want to talk about neonates because that's where it all begins. But we are, when we are born, still a part of our mothers. Mm -hmm. We know who our mother is. 
We know by smell and we know by rhythm, the rhythm of her heartbeat and the rhythm of her body. And in those first weeks of life, up to about two and a half months, the baby's job is to be close and survive near the mother's body. The mother's job is to protect that infant, to make eye contact, to nurture and sustain life until they are old enough to figure out a little bit more about the world they are living in. Their sensory world is overwhelming and their, their motor world is yet to develop and all they know is the comfort of mother. And I'm not going to go through a lot of detail about the neonate except to say that we are currently in a culture where children are being put with nannies by the age of six to 12 weeks. I find this horrific and criminal that the standard for a good corporation is 12 weeks of parental leave. And at 12 weeks, the baby is still coming out of that neonate phase. That child can no more perceive of a separation from their parents than they can perceive of a separation from their right foot. There's no place in their body for that to take hold. A lot of people are going to be frustrated with this concept. You might be frustrated with this idea. This has become so much a part of our culture, and some might even feel that it brings on shame to talk about this. To help us understand, let's just look at separation at birth. And then Betty will talk more about daycare and when moms have to go back to work. For me to understand this, given my training as a medical physician and what I was taught to focus on the medical needs of a newborn, it was essential for me to put aside that lens of my training and instead view it through the experience of the infant. When we look at the definition of trauma, it is anything that for any reason at that time overwhelmed our ability to respond. And so through that lens, now let's look at birth. I mean, just birth, even a normal healthy birth. Birth is a major life transition when you think about it. You're going from this water bath that you've only ever known to all of a sudden this world that can feel harsh, it can feel cold, you're out of the water and you're having to breathe on your own. And this transition, as with all transitions in life, they're stressful. But this transition is extremely stressful, extremely stressful for a baby because they have to even learn how to breathe for the first time. And they're exposed to all this, all this sensory stimulation for the first time. They've never known cold before, for example. Now, depending even on the type of birth they have will depend on the exact stressors that they experience, whether the pressure of the vagina or the approaching heat and the collapse of the protective tissues and the container around them. But either way, they're out and then they have to take that first breath. And even that first breath comes from a place of stress of, I need oxygen and I've never known not to have oxygen. Safety is what they desperately need in this moment of transition. And separation from the only nervous system they know to them is like death. They don't understand separation. They've never experienced that before. As was just mentioned, we know who our mother is by smell, by rhythm of her heartbeat, and the rhythm of her body. This is what a newborn needs to stay connected to, to navigate birth without it becoming a trauma that becomes stored in their body memory and becomes their biology. What happens is that early in their life, very early in the development of their nervous system, they experience intense overwhelm when they have this separation. 
they think they are going to die. Without that connection to the only nervous system they know, they are not experiencing any degree of safety and they experience an intense sense of overwhelm. Now, this is not a conscious memory, right? You're not going to remember, you're not going to have memory of this. You're not going to think back and be like, oh yeah, I remember when I was born. So you're not going to have conscious memory, but they carry a program that is wired into their implicit memory, one of the forms of body memory from this experience. And this is only one example of how life experiences become our biology. That programming of overwhelm from such an early time of life creates a pattern of their nervous system for what we call dysregulation or having a very difficult time calming itself down and feeling like things are all okay. They have a very difficult time getting to that place of knowing that they will be okay. I will be okay. But that's birth and that's separation at birth. What about daycare? That's got to be different, right? Like that has to be different. Well, let's jump back into the conversation with Betty and have her share about some families that she has worked with in Seattle. I live in Seattle and I will not name the, the uh, software company that has been requiring mothers under penalty of losing their job to go back to work at 12 weeks. We need to rethink this as a culture. Our support for mothers has been very, very underfunded. Uh, mm -hmm. And we come into this world of children with mental health expecting our children to become resilient, which I think is unfair. We are asking well, for yeah. resilience in children. And what we should be looking for is resilience in families, resilience in communities, resilience in family support services, and a re-looking at resilience as a resilient culture. How do we want to raise our children? So I'm, I'm getting tired of the word resilience in therapy because resilience implies that that child has to kind of buck up in some way or another and, mm -hmm. and meet the needs of a parent who, who is required to go back to work at penalty of losing their job. So when that happens, like the children don't have the framework in their biology to be resilient. Yeah. And so it's, it's this unrealistic expectation that actually pushes them more towards mental health diagnoses because they're, they're expected to be independent without the biology to support that ability for self-regulation and independence yet. Absolutely. And research that's been done in the UK long ago, but very relevant, is that a child really doesn't have a complete understanding of separation from their parents until about exactly. 30 months. And that yep. children who are placed in child care centers before 30 months will suffer a kind of shock yes. uh, of one degree or another, minimally or profoundly, that will later on influence their learning and attending abilities. So we do not live in a culture that allows us to be with our child anywhere near 30 months. And so we are seeing more and more children who have suffered that kind of shock of separation from the primary caregiver sent into a, a care setting where their developmental needs may not be met as well. It's that very shock that then starts the biology to be offset in their vagus nerve. And it's like, it's like them starting the paved road towards the freeze response because children at that age, that's their response to those types of traumas in their nervous system is going into the freeze response, going into that shock state. And then that is really what sets into play the future conditions like autoimmune conditions 
or even certain types of cancer that can be traced back to these types of imbalances and shock that a young child experienced. And a person may never even relate to having had trauma, neglect, abuse, you know, things that they relate as, as childhood stressors. And yet this would be one of those types of stressors that is a big shock to their system and causes them to start to develop a freeze response to overwhelming stress. I hear so many people who don't feel that they have had any trauma in their life, and yet they have present-day symptoms of stored trauma, such as chronic health conditions, overwhelm in their work, challenges in relationships, and the list can go on. This is an example of where our nervous systems can have absorbed overwhelm, such as early separation from our mom, which is considered normal by society, so no one thinks of it as a trauma. And yet this very early, early overwhelm can create stored trauma that can lead to symptoms of anxiety, depression, other autoimmune, mental health, and health conditions down the road. You see, stored trauma becomes a pattern wired or programmed into our autonomic nervous system that has chronic effects on our biology. And when these experiences of overwhelm happen so early in life, a person can feel, but I've always been this way, so I think I was born this way, or maybe it's my genetics and just who I am. And that is not true at all. That is not true at all. This is not who they really are. These are the effects of early life overwhelm. And let's just call it what it is, a trauma response. And the trauma responses affects on the body and on our biology. Now, what is so profound about early life overwhelm is that it programs something into the developing brain. Remember, this is a brain and body that is still developing when something of such impact affects its growth. It's like the growth rings on a tree. I don't know if you've ever been in a forest and been looking at tree stumps. I was doing that when I was a kid. But when you look at a tree stump, you can see growth rings, which if you know what you're looking for, you can actually read the whole history of that tree and the stress that it has survived because of changes in the growth rings, what they look like, how thick are they. Early life overwhelm is not just a stress, but a trauma. And so would cause the equivalent of a dent in one of those growth rings in a tree stump that all future rings would still show that dent. The trauma response becomes stored in our body because it becomes part of our foundation that all else continues to be built on so that everything on top of it will still have that response. It becomes the central thread in the wiring of our electrical nervous system that the other wires grow around. The pattern becomes, ah, I quickly become overwhelmed with life. I am sensitive. I can be reactive. I can have a hard time finding my zen. I have to become rigid and control my environment in order to not lose emotional control. You see, the trauma response will shut down our ability to open up to the world, to be curious and explore. Stored trauma in the body will make a person frequently, if not all the time, feel unsafe in the world insecure, definitely not feeling safe, supported, secure, curious, and open to exploring and learning. Because if we don't feel safe and secure, how can we learn? How can we open ourselves up? We learn only what we need to in order to survive. In fact, trauma will shut down that learning. And that is exactly where we go next in this conversation with Betty, as we continue to move through the stage of a neurodevelopment to the next stage, and the two important hormones early in life 
that shape the brain's development and its capacity to learn in relationship to trauma. Exactly. And one of the, I'm going to move up a little in the central nervous system because I do want to talk about the the child up to the about six, seven months of age. And one of the things that I have come to realize is that the children are beginning to create a hormonal set point. So the baby, all of their sensory and all of their motor skills in that first six months of life are directed towards preserving their own life and connecting with a parent. And we can go through some of those more specifically and how they get impacted. But when those profound needs are not met, the brain will tip towards more cortisol production. And when they're producing more cortisol, cortisol is a a neurotoxin. It actually destroys brain tissue so that you can get brain damage without having had a brain blow just through excessive cortisol. From childhood. (laughs) From from the day we are born practically. Yeah. So the baby that is well cared for, that is loved, whose needs are met, they cry, their mother comes to care for them. That child is going to tip their their hormonal balance towards oxytocin. Oxytocin, the love and cuddle hormone. But Mm -hmm. I want to tell you in a minute why I also also think it's the learning hormone. So love and cuddle and learning. And Mm -hmm. if if they tip towards that, the world is an open place for them and they can reach out and explore and be curious and feel safe. And that is going to be a hormonal set point if they don't have their needs met, if they don't have a, a caregiver who is consistent, their hormones will tip more towards cortisol. And And I think that key word is consistency. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Now, there is no harm in occasionally letting a baby cry and be frustrated as they need to sort of resolve an internal issue for themselves. But the consistent neglect of the child, how would they be neglected? They are so needy. When they cry, we need to come to them. Mm -hmm. Let's think about it. They're orphanages. They're the babies that are left at the fire station in Beijing or abandoned on a street corner somewhere in Romania, or who are all good intents and and purposes are just ignored because there are too many children, there's too much chaos in the family, or are sent to early nursery. Now, you may be familiar with orphanages because of your work, as am I, but I've also walked into nurseries, childcare centers in the United States where there's a room full of babies, absolutely quiet, who are not speaking to get their needs met because they know their parent is not there to meet. Yep. Oh, yes. These babies actually go into a shock state. That's the freeze response or the trauma response. And when we look back at just the, the birth experience, but we can relate it to many other life, early life experiences, we do what is necessary. And I do believe that every mother does the best that she is capable of at that time in her life. And if a baby is in critical condition at birth, we do what is necessary. Life-preserving measures need to be taken. There's no question about that. The baby has to be separated from mom to do those life-preserving measures. That's the benefit of the amazing technologies we have developed in our modern world. We can keep babies alive who would otherwise not have made it before. And yet, the common practices that keep a baby away longer than necessary or prevent contact with the parent when that would actually be the best thing for the health and vitality of that baby. And those are still not being taken into consideration. 
What if, just what if a baby were able to lay on its mother's tummy while life-preserving measures were being taken? Or touch was allowed somehow? Or even physical proximity and the measurable electromagnetic forces from mom's body and heart could be felt by baby? It would provide, might provide just that additional sense of, you are not alone. I am here. And when we feel that we have that support, when someone is there for us, we are much more able to access that sense of safety and not go so deep into that place of overwhelm as a newborn would who doesn't know that it can even survive being separated from the only body it has ever known. There's also so much that we can do after the fact and even for ourselves once we are adults. So there's so much hope and things that we can do. I am thinking of Lita who started experiencing overwhelm in utero And the work that she has continued to do since taking the 21-day journey, my goodness, over a year ago now, the work has allowed her to complete many trauma response cycles related to what feels very early for her, processed a lot of early life grief that she doesn't seem to have language for because it happened so early, pre-verbal. And now she's been able to experience and access a greater degree of safety, connection, and health more than what she can remember in any other time in her life and she is in her 70s. Let's finish up with Betty Lamont here. And oh my goodness, we're going to talk about the gaze of the eyes and what is possible. So I want to talk a little bit about what happens before seven months of age with their whole sensory system. Because this little baby, when they are developing a brain that is not yet traumatized, what they're going to do is gaze into the eyes of a beloved caretaker and they begin to develop their mirror neurons and the mirror neurons are fascinating because they go to a place in the brain that is deeper than vision itself. There is an an exploration that was done about vision. Only 80% of the things that come through our retina go to the place in our brain that makes pictures. 20% goes deep into the limbic system and helps us understand the mood to reflect back that mood there. We send signals through our pupils out as well as in. It's this is the beginning of, of empathy is it being is able to actually empathy. read and respond with that emotional affect. Empathy, sympathy, and compassion. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's take a pause there. That was some pretty powerful stuff. And I don't want to just fly by it. Is she really saying that these early experiences, looking into a caregiver's eyes, develops and impacts how the child's empathy, sympathy, emotions, and compassion develops? Yes. Could this impact violence, bullying, school violence? Yes. It is so contrary to our North American culture, though, and so quite sobering to think that being with a primary caregiver longer than what we've been doing and a caregiver, one with whom the child feels safe enough, and ideally mom, can actually give a child an advantage to developing empathy, compassion, and ability to feel and emotionally connect with others. The longer that a child is able to stay with their mom, as long as they feel safe enough with her, that develops so much in their brain and in their ability to connect with others 
on a healthy social emotional level. Now, again, there is no shame here. We are just educating ourselves on the proper care and development of a human baby because this is what happens when that natural bonding time and safety is disrupted. Let's look into that. My thoughts about learning and why oxytocin is also a learning hormone. Because to learn, we're not talking here about the baby under seven months old. We're talking about a brain that is still in there and still informing the seven-year-old, right? So we don't, that brain isn't going to fall out like a baby tooth after it's developed. It's going to stay right there with all of its fight or flight or common Mm -hmm. uh, and affectionate, whatever we put in there is going to stay there. So when we learn what we have to do is to take in information, to take Mm -hmm. in information, we have to understand that there is some kind of a void in our information. If I want to learn something, I have to say, I don't know. To say, I don't know means that I'm curious. In order to be curious, I have to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is the enemy of our insecure children. Vulnerability. I have watched a child have to acknowledge they don't know something and see the fear almost of death in their eyes. I don't know this. You're not going to like me. If you're not going to like me, you're going to get rid of me. If you get rid of me, I'll go back to the orphanage. If I go back to the orphanage, I'm going to die. And that happens in a quarter of a second, that leap from I don't know to I'm going to die. So as a child gets to be seven, eight, nine years old, they have to be right. They can't learn easily because they can't say, I don't know. I'm even thinking of all the adults that (laughs) when it comes to that moment where they realize that they don't know something and you can almost see their internal dialogue and their mind just spinning of what am I going to do to hide the fact that I don't know this? Because obviously their brain has the story, has the experience that not knowing was not safe. They have that insecurity that comes up if if we haven't addressed it. (laughs) To say, I don't know, is what the smartest of us does. And yet, you know, I've had that experience of not feeling safe if I don't know something. And it's taken me a long time to be able to say, hey, I don't know that. And that's, it's a very mature place, but we have to build this in much earlier, this capacity to feel safe so that we can reach out. And the baby that reaches out to grab their mama's nose and doesn't have their hand slapped away because she just put makeup on, that baby can play with mama's nose and push it around and mama laughs and the world is safe and the world is beautiful. Oh, what else am I curious about her glasses? I'm going to take them off now. So that's the beginning of learning. Learning begins with a good balance that I think is very much rooted in our oxytocin. Now, I'm talking about how babies are taking in information, right, before seven months old. But I want to point out something that a lot of people, even in your audience, may not be aware of, is that babies must move. And there are motor activities that are absolutely directed by the central nervous system that any baby born to any mother anywhere in the world, if they're not impeded by various straps and wraps and buckets. If they're not impaired with cerebral palsy or potentially, you know, a missing limb, they will always go to the same activities. And those activities are prompts for the brain. And I like to say that we don't learn to move. We move in order to learn. 
we move so that our brain will make new connections to make all of this that we are talking about possible. But at this stage, we are still talking before seven months about safety and, and life preservation. And this sets us up for a kind of personal resilience, you know, and I want larger forms of resilience as well. But I truly believe that if babies could, if we could in our economy, as many other cultures do support mothers and fathers and primary caregivers through the first three years of life. Oh my goodness, that is absolutely radical. But it's what nature tells us. Nature mm -hmm. tells us that the baby really needs a very intimate level of support. Now, there are ways to transfer uh, primary caregiving roles to another person. But the age that we're talking about, the baby is barely removed from their mother's body and still considers themselves part of their mother's body. Yes. But this baby, despite that attachment, needs to be put down on the floor on their tummy. They need to experience their metal, the test their metal, if you will, against the against the strong surface. And that's where they open up. They start creating spinal curves and all of that soft frontal side that only human beings expose. No other animal does this. It opens us up to the world. When they are tummy crawling, they are creating a thrust with their lower body. They begin to move with their tummy on the floor forward, which we call crawling. And as those little feet thrust into the floor and push them forward, they establish force vectors that will relate them to gravity. Now, we know that there's a, a, a new sensation about, it's not new, but we didn't realize that gravity was a, a sensation until we left the planet, right? And then we, oh, gravity, that's a sensation too. Graviception is the fancy new word for the sensation that means I'm grounded, I feel strong, I can stand up for myself, I feel secure. And when babies are crawling, they make that connection through the thrust mm -hmm. up the leg, through the bones of the leg into the hip socket and stabilize and establish healthy hip sockets and trigger that whole level of the brain to open it up to receive all of the incoming sensory issues, the sensory uh, feelings that we're talking about. Now, when we're working therapeutically with children who are later on in life, but have still experienced trauma at this level, we're going to have them crawl. We're going to have them crawl on their tummies. And they will often, the traumatized children, have a kind of reprocessing of some of their trauma. For some, it can be very, very difficult. Uh, and I personally would never work without a psychotherapist also available mm -hmm. in the more in more traumatized children. But our goal is not to take away the trauma. Our goal is instead of the trauma being right here all the time for mm -hmm. our children to grow to the point over time, not it's not an immediate overnight thing over time to be able to say that happened to me out there. That was bad. That was really horrible. Those were bad people. But that's out there and I'm here. And that's really our goal in working neurodevelopmentally to pull this out of the core of their being and put it out there rather than it being an invisible, unspeakable, preverbal, horrific mm -hmm. event or experience. What I'm going to share with you next may sound crazy to you, and I'm okay with that. I am that confident in the results that I see in people who do this work. For everyone I see, children and adults, 
who have early life stress and overwhelm in the first six months of life, I have them redo these neurodevelopmental movements they would have been doing at that age. If they were experiencing overwhelm at that time, they would not have opened up the body as much. Maybe they didn't have the opportunity to get enough tummy time and tummy crawl, and that actually is contributing to why they get more overwhelmed and almost attract trauma responses even now as an adult. After the 21-day journey, people are able to take my journey into attachment and neurodevelopment for those that need to heal something from that phase of their life. Because of my own powerful experience with bringing in neurodevelopmental movement, and especially this tummy crawl, I strongly encourage them to do it. And most of them do. (laughs) For those who see one of my health coaches for personalized recommendations, I have them send in a video of their tummy crawl because it tells me so much about the first six months of their life. Kind of like those growth rings in the tree stump. There have been times when I do the tummy crawl and nothing seems to happen, but that I get up feeling so much more grounded and calm and organized inside. Other times have been so powerful and I can tell my body is working through a specific memory that I have no conscious memory of. I have broken down into tears on the floor with waves of grief that feel so young. And then with the movement that I'm able to bring in on my tummy still, I'm able to move through that trauma response, complete it, and feel a huge burden lift off of me. It's been interesting that for some of the people going through that journey into attachment and neurodevelopment, even some of the professionals in the Biology of Trauma Certificate Training Program, they have felt such a resistance and for some even a panic that they were not even able to get down on their tummy for a long time. But we work through that in that course as well. In summary, experiences of overwhelm in childhood can come from subtle, normal things of society that we don't think twice about, such as going to daycare at too young of an age or being separated from mom at birth or too much in the first few years of life. And the body only has one trauma response. And when our body stores these early life experiences and we don't have the tools or knowledge to know what to do with them, it can affect our lives for the rest of our life. This stored trauma can affect learning. It will affect learning. Even into adulthood, we can struggle to be open and curious to explore and even admit that we don't know something due to our trauma adaptations. We can struggle to say, I don't know, because it doesn't feel safe to not know. However, the good news is that we can rewire these patterns at any age. And I do mean at any age. That is why I do what I do. I love to teach people how to work with even these very early stored traumas in their body. And it really all starts with feeling safe, truly feeling safe. And that's why I won't take anybody into that journey into attachment and neurodevelopment without them feeling safe and having those tools to feel safe that they learn in the 21 day journey. So if you haven't taken that yet, that is where you would start the 21 day journey where in just 21 days, people going through that program experience a 60% increase in the felt sense of safety in their bodies. Oh my goodness. What could that mean for your health, your learning, your ability to open up to the world? Thanks so much for joining today. Stay tuned. Next week is part two with Betty Lamont. We will be diving more into early attachment and answering the one question of how do we not traumatize our infants with common parenting practices? Until next time, this is Dr. Amy. Thank you for joining me today. 
If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey, and you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love. Oh, 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 oh